R.C. Sproul begins his commentary on the Gospel of Mark this way. He says, imagine for a moment that you are a Christian in first century Rome. You're assembled with your congregation on Lord's Day, but not in a church. The persecutions of Emperor Nero are raging, and if the authorities discover that you are a believer, you'll be arrested and subjected to the death penalty. So you and your fellow believers are gathered underneath the city in the catacombs, surrounded by skeletons and cadavers. When Nero came to power, he reigned in calmness and with some ability for about five years. However, in A.D. 59, he changed and began to engage in a radically cruel and many immoral actions. Then in the year 64, a great fire devastated Rome. It's difficult for us to understand the extent of the destruction that took place as a result of that fire. When it broke out, it spread to the seven wards of the city and it raged for seven days. No sooner did it appear to be brought under control than it broke out again and ultimately it destroyed nearly 80% of the city. The devastation that Hurricane Katrina wrought on New Orleans is not even comparable to the damage that the fire caused in Rome. When things like this happen, everyone looks for someone to blame, and many suspected that Nero himself had done it in his insanity. To deflect suspicion, Nero chose to blame it on Christians. Word spread through the city that the destruction had been caused by those antisocial, anti-religious fanatics who bore the name of Jesus Christ. So Nero sent his military out to round up every Christian he could find. And when he arrested the Christian, Christians, he clothed them in the skins of wild animals. Then, in a public display of cruelty, he let feral dogs loose against them. Thinking they were assaulting wild animals, the dog attacked the Christians, garbed in the skins, and killed many of them. Other Christians Nero dipped in pitch or tar and ignited their bodies using them to illuminate his private parties. If that was not enough, other Christians were brought into the Colosseum and fed to the lions for entertainment. In all probability, it was around the year 65, in the immediate aftermath of the Great Fire, that the first written record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ appeared. The Gospel according to Mark. It's basically a settled matter of historical investigation that the initial audience for this gospel were the Christians suffering persecution in Rome. This gospel reminded them of their salvation in Christ, taught them about the suffering that Jesus himself experienced, and even revealed that Jesus was driven into the wilderness and was under the threat of wild beasts, just as they are. So imagine yourself in the catacombs, Worshiping with a little band of believers. On this Lord's Day, however, the pastor of your congregation comes with a new document. It is the newly written Gospel of Mark. And you are about to hear the Word of God in the first reading of this Gospel. As he mentioned, Mark was in all likelihood the very first of the four Gospels written. Mark was probably in Rome itself when he wrote it to the Roman, with the Roman believers in mind, in their persecution and their suffering. 
And he begins his gospel this way. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Simply says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wanted to talk to these believers about who Jesus was and how they were supposed to respond to him. But before we really dive into the text of Mark, and, and, and Mark just does that, he, he dives right into the story. I think it's good for us to get to know Mark a little bit and find out who he is. If you're going to spend some time with someone, if you're going to go over to their house and hang out a little bit, if you're going to be friends, it's nice to know a little bit of who they are. And we're going to spend some time with Mark. And so let's just take a minute and find out who he is, at least as much as we know about him. The Bible refers to him on a few different occasions. His name is Mark or John Mark. He's not explicitly mentioned in the gospel as its author, but most scholars agree that he's the one that wrote it. Peter was likely his main source. Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples. He was not there witnessing all of the events of Jesus' life and ministry. And so he needed a source, and most scholars believe that that's, that was Peter for several reasons. His, his language is very similar to Peter's. If you read Peter's sermon in the book of Acts, or several of his sermons in the book of Acts, then you turn to Mark, you see a lot of similarity in Mark's language. Also, ancient historical records cite that he wrote it. One One early church writer says, When Peter had preached the gospel publicly in Rome, those who were present besought Mark, since he had followed Peter for a long time and remembered the things that he had spoken, to write out the things that had been said. And when he had done this, he gave the gospel to those who asked him. That's the earliest record we have of Mark being the author of the epistle. He had a close relationship with Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 5.13 says, uh, refers to Mark as Peter's son. You know, you know Timothy was, was kind of Paul's child in the faith. He was his, his right-hand man, one of his close disciples. And Mark was very much that for Peter. We don't know much about Mark's physical description except for one uh, unique reference in, uh, in early uh, church history. Uh, it said that he had a, his, one of his nicknames was uh, Stump-Fingered, and that was because, this writer said, he had rather small fingers in comparison with the stature of the rest of his body. We don't know anything about, else about his physical description other than he had stumpy fingers. Um, uh, kind of a unique thing to be recorded in history. Mark was a Jewish Christian, and uh, we don't have any record of how he came to Christ. We don't have any record of his, his, his conversion. But we know that he was a cousin of Barnabas, and Colossians 4.10 tells us that. His mother Mary was likely a wealthy woman. Uh, she owned a home in Jerusalem that was large enough for the believers to gather and meet. Uh, you might remember the story, and in fact you can turn there because there's a few verses we're going to look at. In Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, you might remember the story there. This is when Peter is arrested and thrown into prison. And he's, he's about to be executed, literally in just a few hours, by Herod. 
And the believers are praying for his release, and Peter's there sleeping in prison. And you might remember that, that an angel miraculously came and, and let him out. He, just, he literally just walked out of the prison with no one stopping him, no one grabbing him, no one even seeing him. And Peter thought the whole thing was just a dream until he got outside the gate, and he's like, whoa, this really just happened. And so he went to the believer's house. You remember he knocked on the door and the little servant girl came and, and left him standing there and went back and told the believers, listen, Peter's here. And they're like, no, forget it. It's just his ghost or, or something. They, they didn't believe that he'd actually been set free. And finally, she convinced them and, and they let him in and they celebrated. Well, that was at Mary's house. The mother, this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's a different Mary. This is John Mark's mom's house. And, and so most scholars believe that, that she's rather wealthy because she had a large enough house to be able to host all those believers at the prayer meeting. And so this young man, Mark, at some point came to Christ and began to be involved in ministry. And in Acts chapter 12, um, the very last verse, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on a, on a missionary journey. And it says in, in Acts 12.25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and when they, had completed, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so we begin to see that he was, he was getting involved in missionary work and taking the gospel out into the Roman Empire. And in the next chapter, in verse 5, chapter 13, verse 5, it says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word, of the, God, the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they, and they had John to assist them. That was John Mark. And so he begins to get involved in ministry. This was a young man who was on fire for Christ and wanted to be involved on the, on the front lines of getting the gospel out. That's a, that's a noble calling. That's a noble desire. And he was being obedient to the Lord in sharing the gospel. You know, some of us, we, we struggle to, to share Christ, don't we? We, get, we find reasons not to. We make excuses. We get nervous. We get fearful of what people are going to say. But John Mark was willing to give up everything that he had at home. And he was willing to go. We like to be comfortable. We like to, we like to, to stay in routines and, and do things that are within our, our comfort zone, so to speak. But maybe God is calling you today to step out like John Mark and, and be willing to go where the gospel has not been proclaimed. To go and, and share Christ with people who have yet to hear. And that's what he did. But I also want you to see about John Mark that he wasn't a perfect guy. He had his struggles. And in verse 13, as they're in the middle of this missionary journey, it tells us, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And if you want to look in your maps in the back there and find out where all those areas are, you're more than welcome to. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on. And it's almost just a, you almost just gloss over it. You're reading the account, you want to see what happens to Paul and Barnabas, and it's just a little phrase thrown in there that you can almost just read over, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't know anything else as to the reason why. All we can do is speculate. All we can do is guess as to why John did not stay with them. But for some reason, he went back home. 
And we might not think anything more of this, but go over to Acts chapter 15. I know you might be thinking, well, I thought we were studying the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Acts here, but this is giving us some background as to who he is and what he's like. Acts fifteen thirty six. They had returned from that missionary journey, and they were getting ready, Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go on another one, and it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and, and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul wanted to go back and check on the churches he planted. He knew that he'd left young, fledgling believers all along his way, and he wanted to go back and strengthen them and, and make sure that they weren't being, being uh, you know, sucked in by the, by the unbelievers of the world and the cares that surrounded them. He wanted to strengthen them. And so, Barnabas, verse 37, wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. It gives us only just a hint, but for whatever reason Mark had for leaving the first missionary journey, Paul thought it was a lame reason. And he felt like Mark was a bit of a quitter. He says, I'm not taking this kid along again. He, he flaked out on me once. I'm not going to drag him along to watch him do it again. Paul had strong opinions about this and, and was not really excited about this young man, John Mark. And so it tells us in verse 39 that there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is a very, very interesting story. Because what you have here is two pillars in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, having a fight over whether or not to take this guy. I mean, you know, sometimes Christians have disagreements. Have arguments. It happens even to the, the strongest of believers. And their solution here was to stay involved in the ministry, to stay involved in doing the work, but to do it separately. They they doesn't say that they were they were rivals, that they carried bitterness in their hearts, but they just said, you know what? If Paul said, if you want John Mark, you're gonna have to take him and go somewhere else. And in the end, God used this in a, in a powerful way because you had two missionary teams going out instead of just one. And they were able to cover more territory and more ground. God used their bickering. God still worked through their infighting to get the job of getting the gospel out accomplished. But there's something else I want you to see. So they, so they went on their way. They, they, they ministered. And we really don't hear much more of, of how the situation played out until we come to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is the very last book that Paul wrote on, uh, in his life. He's at the tail end of his life. He's at, at, in, his, in his final, what most scholars believe, his final imprisonment. Uh, church history tells us that he was, he was uh, executed by Nero. 
And he is very likely only maybe weeks, months away from that happening. And when you read the, the, the book of 2 Timothy, you get the, the sense of heaviness. And, it, and there's a tone of finality in Paul's writing. He, he knows he's at the end of his life. And there's just a, a, a I don't know, I challenge, I challenge you to read it. There's just a somber tone over the whole book. And as he gets to the end of, end of his book, he's talking about how many believers have deserted him. He says, only Luke is with me. And he explains that other believers have gone here and there. In verse 11, though, he tells Timothy, Luke alone is with me, but get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. When I read a verse like that, it makes me smile for several reasons. Because first of all, Paul was humble enough to admit at some point that he was wrong about Mark. There was a point in his ministry where he didn't want anything to do with him. Paul was a hardliner, and and, and he knew that the ministry was tough, and he said, he flaked out once, he's going to do it again. But here now, at the end of his life, he had changed his opinion about Mark. How many times do we dig our heels in about something? We've made up our mind, and we're, we're sure that we're right about a person, about a judgment that we've made. Be willing to let God soften your heart. Realize that the same Holy Spirit that has worked in your life is at work in the life of that other Christian. And God's shaping and molding, and we need to be patient with one another. We need to extend grace, the same grace that we so willingly receive from God, we need to have towards one another. And at some point, Paul's heart softened. But there's something else I learned from this, in that, listen, God is way bigger than our failures. Maybe John Mark really did blow it. Maybe he did flake out. Maybe, maybe he, he got a weak stomach and, and maybe he got, you know, life was too good and comfortable back in Jerusalem. And he said, forget all this hard work. Forget, forget these, these sleepless nights and working with these, these pagans in the Roman Empire. I want the comforts of home. Maybe he really did. Maybe he really blew it. But you know what? Our God is bigger than our failures. Our God is bigger than our mess-ups. And He wants to use and work through us in ways that we can't even imagine. And we need to let Him. We need to remember that the past is in the past. And that God has a plan for our future. He, He desires us to be involved. And He wants to use our gifts. And I'm so glad Mark didn't just quit. That he didn't let the discouragement of his failure encumber him. And that he kept going. So that at the end of Paul's life, Paul could say, he is a blessing to me and my ministry. Please, please bring him along. That's Mark. That's the man who who wrote this book under the direction of God's Holy Spirit. I want to tell you just a few characteristics of this book. It's different than the other three Gospels. All of them have their own unique flavor. They're, they're, they're all talking about the life and ministry of Christ. But if you've read through them re- recently, you know that they, they all have just a little bit different audience. They focus in on different aspects of Jesus' life and His words. And Mark is unique in that it's the shortest of the four Gospels. It can be read, even an average reader can sit down and read it through in about an hour. Uh, it's a fast-paced book full of energy and vivid descriptive language. 
you almost, if you do sit down, and, and, and if you have an hour, I encourage you to do this. Just read straight through the book of Mark. You almost, you almost get, um, get out of breath because he moves from one story to the next. He, he, um, the way that he structures his sentences, he often, rather than break off and start a new sentence, he strings his sentences together with the word and. And so he moves really quickly through topics and, and through the story. He uses the word immediately 36 times because he's immediately going on to the next thing. If you read just the first two chapters, you'll see it. It's just from one story to the next. You'll also notice that the long discourses or sermons of Jesus are almost completely left out. He focuses mostly on the actions of Jesus. He's very action-oriented. Uh, if, if you're looking for the Sermon on the Mount, if you're, you're going to have to look in, in Matthew and Luke. If you're looking for um, Jesus' final charge to his disciples, you're going to have to look in like John 13 through 17. But if you, want, if you want action, if you want story, if you want to be brought into the life of Jesus, then Mark is the place to be. Uh, he was a charismatically endowed teacher and evangelist who had a tremendous grasp of the Old Testament and its application to the church. Um, it's not going to be, and as none of the Gospels are, a complete account of everything that Jesus did and said. His language and style, his descriptions are very vivid. We'll see in several times where he goes into very much uh, more descriptive language than some of the other Gospel writers did. I'm excited about this study and the, the things that God are, is going to teach us as we examine the Gospel of Mark. We've entitled this series, forgive the pun, Marked, Forever Changed. Because you see, as you encounter Jesus Christ, you can't just simply acknowledge Him as a, as a wise and a great sage. There's no room for that. The Gospel of Mark, along with the rest of the Word of God, points us to Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so Mark is going to answer for the, the question for us, who is, the two questions, who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? You can't have one without the other. You can't just ask, who is Jesus, and simply ignore the second question, how am I to respond? You don't have the option of, of staying neutral in this matter. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you may remember, uh, uh, came up with a, a famous trilemma. That Jesus is either Lord, he's liar, or he's a lunatic. You see, asking who Jesus is, is, is the most important question anyone could ever ask. Jesus asked Peter that in Mark chapter 8. Uh, he says to Peter, who do, who do people, he actually said to this whole, all of his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of your disciples, and and then he asked Peter, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. But as C.S. Lewis challenged, we don't get the, the opportunity of, of, of saying that he was just a good man. You may be familiar with this quote, but he said in, in his book, Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And many of you have probably heard this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing, Lewis says, we must not say. 
a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me, Lewis says, to be obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And today we are confronted with the same question, the same challenge. Who is Jesus? He could be a liar. He could have made it all up. He could have been an elaborate con man who who devised this ruse to gain followers and figured that in his death his fame would only spread and so he played everyone for a fool not only his disciples but the millions who have followed him in subsequent years he could be a lunatic like Lewis says on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg he could have been completely delusional and crazy. And we, we've seen through our years our, our share of religious fanatics and, and crazies who have tried to gather around them a call to followers. But the Gospel of Mark paints another picture. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he answers the question, Who is Jesus? By boldly declaring, That Jesus is the Son of God. So he says that this book, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel simply means good news. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. That God himself has descended from heaven and took on flesh. We just celebrated at Christmas time. And became man so that he might not only live but die for the sins of the world. And maybe there are some of you here today not quite having your minds made up about who Jesus is. I want to encourage you to embark on this journey through the Gospel of Mark with us. As we discover the words and the works and the actions of Jesus. But see, here's the thing. You don't just get to make a statement about what you believe Jesus to be. It's not simply an answer on a test. But it's a response of the heart. So if you believe Jesus and who He claims to be, then there's a significance to that decision. Because it's not only important who Jesus is, but it's just as crucial as to what you do with Him. And if you choose to trust in Jesus, and if you believe His words, then the Bible says that you're marked. 
The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your heart. The Bible says that you are a new creation. And it is impossible to ever be the same. And it's my prayer as we study this book together that we walk away forever changed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for your word. And as we think about the gospel of Mark together, I pray, God, that you would just let us be able to enter in to the ministry and the, and the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we learn from him as we sit at his feet, as we hear his words, as we see his actions, as we listen along with the disciples to the parables and, and see what truths you have in there to change our lives. And may that happen as we study this together. May life's change, God, through the working of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.